Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are talking to New England folk queen Chris Delmhorst, who is releasing her new record, Long Day in the Milky Way into a Very Weird World. On the podcast, Chris mentioned that the act of performing songs from a new record night after night on tour really allows her to grow close to the album and to get to know the songs really well, which will be interesting to see what effect that will have on her in the future for this album that won't be performed on tour because of the pandemic. Raised in Brooklyn, Chris Delmhorst was a huge music fan growing up. She taped the weekly Top 40, read Rolling Stone cover to cover, and had Harry Chapin's sister as a grade school teacher. She played the kids The Beatles' Help versus Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, which is a good choice. She studied classical cello and talks about her complicated relationship with classical music presently. Chris worked on a farm in Maine and found her love of playing music with friends and creating community there. These days, she thrives on weaving together her close friendships with her music. On her new record, she centers the music on the harmonies performed by herself, Rose Polanzani, Rose Cousins, and Annie Lynch. She says, I was thinking about the variations in a hand-woven cloth or in a forest, which is kind of hard to expand on, but really when you hear the record, woven fabric definitely comes to mind. We talk about how she met her husband, singer-songwriter Jeffrey Foucault. It's fun talking to Chris. I loved hearing how much of a music geek she was as a kid. She loves pop music from her youth so much that in 2011, she made a Cars cover album. Chris Delmhorst is just a wonderful person. So thrilled to have her on the podcast. Her new album, Long Day in the Milky Way, it's out now, unless you're listening to this on Thursday, in which case it's out tomorrow. But uh, we're going to take a listen to a song from the new album, When's Gonna Find a Way, and then we'll get to our conversation with the wonderful Chris Delmhorst on Mesic Falk. Long day in the Milky Way Hammering my heart against a heavy door All doubt round about And he used to wonder what the pounding's for Don't worry cause This is so great. Thank you for being on the podcast. 
Hey, Cindy. Psyched to see your face, even on a little tiny screen. Uh, Chris Stelmhorst was a early booster of Basic Folk and also one of the many um, strong suggestions that I include song clips in the podcast. So I just mm. want you to know that's a Chris Delmhorst original. You're welcome. It's all because of you. Actually, I heard <laughs> it from a few people. And then as soon as I heard it from you, I was like, geez, I better do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nice. So, Glad all right. Power. This is, this is going to be fun. Um, so let's talk about growing up in Brooklyn. Um, what part of Brooklyn did you grow up in and what was your neighborhood like and wondering how you might still feel connected to it? Mm. That's funny because my parents just left the house for our first visit since the whole thing started. Um, and so we were talking about it a bunch. I grew up in um, a neighborhood called Brooklyn Heights, which is a super nice neighborhood right near where the Brooklyn Bridge lands. But, you know, it's just like a pretty mellow residential neighborhood and it's really cute and like they would film movies there moon dance um no what is it called moonstruck got um filmed around the corner from my house wow. also many episodes of soap operas uh, <laughs> i bet <laughs> yeah and it's and also my parents both grew up in flatbush in a neighborhood that i think they're calling now ditmas um and so that was also that was like the big Victorian houses with a yard and stuff. So that was my grandma's house growing up. That was also kind of my other neighborhood. Is that, are they, so they're native New Yorkers. So mm -hmm. yeah, yep, many, both of them born and raised. And how many generations of New Yorkers are you? Um, It depends. The furthest one back is, well, I don't know. That's just, this is my mom's department. Most of them, um, my most of my grandparents were either first or second generation, but my mom's dad, those guys go way, way back. Wow. Yeah. I don't even know how far. Yeah, whenever I play at Jalopy, which is a little club in Red Hook, um, I go around the corner because my, I think, great-great-grandfather had a tailor shop right around that corner. And uh, yeah, that's, there's like the deep Brooklyn roots. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then um, did you have siblings growing up? Yeah, I have one sister who's younger. Cool. And then uh, was it a big age difference? She's three years younger than me. So, so that's pretty good. Yes. <laughs> How would no, you... it's kind of like normal, normal-ish. So like I'm from the suburbs and I always find it like very interesting to hear like what you did when you were kids, like how you played in your neighborhood. So how would you and your sister play in your neighborhood together? Yeah. You know, we didn't really play in our neighborhood together very much unless it was um, the only times I can really remember us playing together outside in the neighborhood was in a giant snowstorm when everything would shut down and we would like make igloos between the cars and stuff that were parked on the street. But we, you know, it wasn't really, it's funny now because I live in a tiny town now with a ton of outdoor space and um and now, and my daughter's 12, and so she's sort of old enough now that I am constantly comparing how I grew up with how she's growing up, and it's so different. But there really wasn't such a thing as, like, go out and play. That wasn't really a thing. I had a friend who lived on a short, not a dead end, but, like, a short one-block street that had really low traffic, and that's where people would play kick the can and stuff like that in the street and stoop ball and whatever. Um, 
but that was only when I was at that friend's house. And then besides that, we we like hung out in the house in the apartment a whole lot. And then, or we would like go somewhere where it made sense to be outside. Um, but we wouldn't really, I don't know, we just didn't really play outside. In the summer, we would go to the beach a lot. And that's when we would just like, you know, goof around in the sand and the water and whatever. So but we had, we shared a bedroom. We actually, we were just talking about this, my family. Um, we shared a bedroom until I went to college, which was my dad just confirmed for us nine by 12 feet. And um, so we sort of had enough. We had enough of each other all the time. Wow. <laughs> Pretty much. Yikes. I know. Um, your dad worked on Wall Street and your mom was a school administrator. Are they retired at this point? Yeah, my dad's been retired for a long time. Um, he sort of got out of that scene when I was in high school and worked a variety of other jobs since then. But uh, the Wall Street thing was not super healthy. Right. That seems so just knowing your personality. I don't know your dad <laughs> at all, but like it seems so counterintuitive to to how, what I know about you. It was almost sort of the family business for him. And um, he, you know, he's not like a, what do you call it? He's not like a hedge trader or any of those kind of things. He was what's called a two penny broker where he was one of the guys running around with pieces of paper down on the on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, like in um, trading places. And so he uh, he did it and he did a good job and, and everything. And I think he always liked the um, the relationships. I mean, he's a very social guy. And so wherever he goes and whatever he's doing, it's kind of about the, the relationships that he's forming. But um, I think it was a little bit of a weird fit and it definitely exacerbated some coping stuff that he had going on in his own life. So he got out of that, which was great for everybody. And um has done a lot of different things since then. And my mom, yeah, right around that time, a little before that, I guess my mom started, um, for a while when we were little, she stayed home with us. And then she went to um, design school for a while and was doing some, you know, self-employed. Um, she had a stenciling business where she would like stencil people's walls. And then eventually she got back into school, yeah, on the administration side. And then she did that until she retired. Nice. What kind of parents were they like? <laughs> um that's a good question they were they were good I saw when I I saw a lot more of my mom when I was younger because my dad was doing that job um but on the weekends it was a very musical family and that like a, that really was a big part of growing up with those guys and some of my happiest memories I think of being all together with the family would be um, singing or making up harmony to things or, um, you know, acting out little shows <laughs> and stuff. Or my dad had some like greatest hits on the piano that we would beg him to play. And then he would play them sometimes if we, you know, could wear them down. <laughs> so yeah, they were, they were really, um, just super supportive and especially of creative stuff. They're both, um, people that love music and love really any kind of creative pursuit. And so that was lucky being a kid who was into that stuff because they mm -hmm. definitely were willing to give it a lot of room and a lot of like respect. Your mom and dad grew up singing in the church choir and it sounds like they continue choir at church. Hopefully not now um, <laughs> no. as adults, like when in, in the normal, the before times and hopefully when we get back to normal, um, what do you take away from that experience of performing music 
in a church? And if at all, how do you approach religion and music now? Mm, Interesting. Yeah, my parents, they actually met, my parents have known each other for, I think, 76 years. They met when they were little toddlers, basically, in at a church in Brooklyn out in Flatbush. And um, they uh, did sing together in a choir in my neighborhood for about 35 years. And then they quit doing that because they were sick of Sundays being taken up and they started doing a, um, they're in a chorale group, the New Haven Chorale in Connecticut. They moved up to Connecticut. And so, um, yeah, they've both been singing their whole life. And I remember really clearly my dad when I was, because we had to go to church and it was a congregational church. It was a fairly um, low key situation, but it was still church and it was still Sunday morning and it was during the top 40 and we had to go. <laughs> I saved the top with, 40. Uh, with um, Casey Kasem? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, so anyway, we... Wait, you would tape to, the top 40? I would tape the top 40 every Sunday. That's <laughs> before. awesome. I know. I had to use the one of the really long tapes. It was like a 120-minute cassette tape. And I had... It only worked once I got a new CD player that would like auto-flip it. Oh, you yeah. Because it was... Because church is long. <laughs> it's really long. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I had to go and um as soon as and I, as soon as I could, I started singing in the choir too because it was just so much more interesting than just than attending church. <laughs> and um I remember talking to my parents about that when I was pretty young, probably, I don't know, a young teenager, and I really remember my dad um saying something about how for him the music was what kind of what God was really or what like worshiping was to him like that's where it lived for him and that's what it meant to him and um and I think the rest of church you know they did it because they were used to it and it was part of their life but uh for them it was really about connecting with the music and that was where the the meaning came in for them and um that was definitely I mean I was never a huge church fan to say the least, but um, the parts that I did like, and the, something that I still sometimes think about and miss is just that very specific feeling of being like one voice in a big, in a big choir, and it's not about you personally, and it's not even really about the people in the choir. It's about, um, you know, you're you're singing to connect to this to this larger uh, force, you know, and that. Is cool. I remember I went to see my parents' singing group recently, and there was a soloist. Um, and I was just watching her sing in this big church, and I felt like she was singing this, you know, sacred music. And um, I felt like I could almost see it was like her feet went into the ground and then became these roots and just were like tapped into this immense thing that she. It was. It was so not about her, and it gave this power to her singing that it's. Um, It was just so much bigger than her, I guess. Mm. And that's something that I find myself kind of following, you know, just and I think that a lot for me that oftentimes lives in the experience of singing with other people um, and just like being one voice of many. I mean, I know that's ironic because I have chosen (laughs) as my life to be like the singer, but it's that's that's what I love more than anything. All right, let's talk about listening to the Beatles and discovering the Beatles when you were five. <laughs> where'd you, where'd you look, Cindy? 
Under rocks. You've got all the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The Beatles was the first band that I was even aware of, I think, being a band. And it was definitely the first music that made me just like lose my mind. And I have a, such a clear feeling. I think it was actually in kindergarten and we had this loft thing and the song Help um, came on, I guess. My um, my kindergarten teacher was Harry Chapin's sister, believe it or not. Well, and she used to play like all kinds of music in the room. She was really cool. So... She put on the Beatles. She must have put on the record Help and Help is the first song. And it just made me feel so much more than I knew what to do with at that time that I just, it was like a physical freak out because it just made me, it was the part, the line that killed me uh, was help me get my feet back on the ground. And um, it's because I think because I was, little kids are so literal, you know, and, and, but also tapped into all of the all of the sort of hidden forces at the same time. I just found that line hilarious and it made me just crazy. It made me want to <laughs> jump out of my actual skin and like <laughs> freak out. So, yeah, that was the first like that moment of being transported by that song. I've never forgotten. It's funny. Um, I don't know. And I don't even know if it was like maybe it could have been Led Zeppelin, you know, maybe it could have been uh you know, heart, I don't know, like whatever, yeah. like whatever I heard, like maybe that would have been the thing, but it was, I was definitely ready to like get deeper. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then did Harry Chapin's sister ever play you Taxi or Cats in the Cradle? <laughs> probably had a different effect. Yeah. I, yeah. Probably not the same feeling. <laughs> <laughs> a little more subdued. <laughs> you mentioned recording the top 40 countdown mm. um and i want to hear more about your fixation on the radio as a kid and how did it play an important role in your musical tastes hmm well the radio i i remember sort of like finding the radio when i was maybe 11 or something like that and um it was kind of like finding a portal to my people kind of was what that felt like. Um, Cause I was really, really obsessed with songs and really um, also living in a very nice, but still two bedroom New York apartment with my parents and my younger sister. And so I always felt a little like um, crowded and a little, probably a little bit trapped and, um, and so like just having this, uh, it was like a tunnel opening to another world that I could, that that was my world, you know. And so I would listen to the radio all the time, drive my sister completely nuts. Um, and uh, it was like, you know, it was just this process of um, like pulling on one little thread of the, of the, you know, weaving and then just letting it. And following it where it went, which was all over the place, I would just like listen to. I mostly was listening to at first just like um, WPLJ, which was just like the top 40 station, um, which in 1982 was playing like, you know, a lot of Eagles and then like, you know, some started to be like Madonna stuff. There was a lot of classic Rocky things. There was a lot of, um, 
you know, top 40, like pop of the moment. And I was into everything. And I had my tape deck with the on record and pause all the time. And whenever a song came on uh, that I was into, I would, you know, take it off pause. So I had just like tapes and tapes and tapes, cassettes of all of my little mixes that I made when I was 11, 12, 13 off the radio. Isn't it funny with those tapes? um, I used to do that too. And um, I think like still to this day when I hear like certain certain Counting Crow songs or certain Mm -hmm. songs from the 90s, I hear like the radio bumper like afterwards, like totally the little like yeah, yeah. Or you hear the DJ like I always I there's certain songs that I can almost still hear what the DJ was saying and the DJ would always like talk over the whole intro and you'd be like, dude, 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 shut up. I'm trying to record the song. And he's just like talking and talking over the whole intro. And uh, I can still hear like. That's called hitting the post. Hitting the post? Yeah. Dudes like to hit the post hard on WPLJ in the <laughs> 1980s. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. But I have a funny story for you about the top 40. Go on. Um, which is that I um, I was had a, I was obsessed with Journey for a little while, and I had a huge crush, unlikely crush, on Steve Perry, which I actually just showed my daughter some pictures of him just to freak her out and tell her that I had a crush on that guy. And uh, anyway, I just I loved his voice so much, and that's all that mattered. And I had managed to tape all their songs off the radio that I really loved, except um, Separate Ways. And I waited for months, and they didn't play it, and they just kept not playing. I kept not catching it, and it was driving me crazy. So I sent in a um, – did you ever listen to Casey Case on Top 40? I, I listened to Rick D's. Okay. Well, I don't know if he did this, but they, what Casey Kasem would do was every time, every week he had a long distance dedication. Yeah. And so someone like would write in their like incredibly dramatic story about why they needed the song played for them or for somebody else. And then he would read their letter and then he would play it. So I wrote in, I wrote uh, a request for a long distance dedication for my non-existent older brother, Kyle with a <laughs> K-Y-L-E. Um, cause he was in prison, Cindy, but he was wrongly accused. Wow. And the only way that I could get a message to him to keep his spirits up in prison was if Casey played him journey separate ways. It didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I mean, every now and then I would miss it, but I never heard it, but it was a really good letter and I could imagine him reading it in his voice. I could pick, I really felt like it was going to work. It was a good letter. How old were you when you wrote that? I think I was probably 12 or 13. Wow. I think. It just started raining really hard here in case you're wondering if you can hear that, that's what's happening. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm into it. I read that you would read Rolling Stone like pretty religiously and Mm -hmm. then did that like thing that thing that i don't know if it still happens anymore for young people discovering music it's so much easier now than it was you know back then where you would kind of like work backwards looking for musicians influences can yeah. you talk about forging that path of discovery back then mm. yeah it was such a um it was it was a real practice it was like one of the things i did you know was like I would get, I got Rolling Stone and I got Spin and, um, I'd read the whole thing when I got it and I'd read all everything, the record reviews, every single thing, you know, bands that I knew, bands I didn't know, whatever. And then, um, it's kind of like, 
I feel like it's sort of like building a map without a map, you know, without like GPS, like building a map of the music uh, landscape, just like little dot at a time. Like you get one thing and you're like, okay, I like this. I like this record by, you know, um, Led Zeppelin. I'm super into this. And so then you like read an article about Led Zeppelin and they start talking about uh, blues guys, you know, they start, maybe they mention like Muddy Waters and you're like, what's that? And so then you kind of like find Muddy Waters, which would involve taking the train, the subway up to Tower Records, like riffling through the blues bins, whatever, finding the CD, being like, is this the CD I'm going to spend my $15 on or is it not today? And then like getting it, bringing it home, absorbing it, you know, just like huffing it. And that's what I kind of miss, I think now about everything being so available is like the preciousness and the like the stakes at that point were pretty you've already invested a lot in the idea of this record and so you would really like follow through on that you know and it wasn't mm-hmm. just like listen to the first song or two and be like yeah you'd be like i'm listening to this whole damn record i'm gonna listen to it at least three times even if i don't like it the first time you know because like you really you like went you went somewhere for that mm-hmm. record so that it was inconvenient I mean, you also end up with like a whole lot of CDs that you spent money on that you don't like. So that's like the downside. But I do that just that feeling of like, oh, my God, here it is. I finally have it. I'm going to dig it. And I'm just going to like that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm going to receive this record and see what it is, you know. But anyway, so you would like get the Muddy Waters record and listen to that and be like, this is amazing. And then find where that went. And it's like just building the web of connections as you understand them, just like little tiny piece by piece. It's cool. Yeah, it is. That is a really cool practice. And also um, in thinking about like, did your, yeah, you do have to spend a lot of money on CDs that you don't like. That's then, the problem. Did it ever occur to you to like go to the library to get Never, CDs? not once. Yeah, yeah. And I don't really know if that was even a thing. Yeah, it probably wasn't. Probably wasn't a thing until it was like too late. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You studied classical cello and then went Mm -hmm. on to study it at Manhattan School of Music. What has been the evolution of your relationship with classical? So classical music, it was sort of, it was my work almost at that time. And I didn't really, I don't think I very often, there were a few things that I would put on and listen to for fun, um, but not, not much in those days with classical music. And now I can put it on and really love it. But to me, it's like reading a book more than it's like listening to music. Like music, you can put on and then live your life with that in the background. And if I'm going to like Jeff goes through phases where he's going to put on like, you know, New World Symphony, like put on Dvorak or something and and listen to it. And I can't I can't even talk to anyone. If anyone tries to say anything, I can't talk to people. I can't do anything like if that stuff's on. It takes my whole brain as if I am reading a book and Mm. um so I don't know. And it's especially if it's something I've ever played, then it's really um, it just commands my entire attention. So I love it, but it's actually pretty rare that that situation comes up that I can really pay attention to music. But, you know, when 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 I hear something, especially a piece that I have a relationship with, you know, when you learn a piece of music, even if it's like learn a cover song or learn, you know, um, 
you know, my darling Clementine or anything you learn, like you, you're putting a little bit of time into it and you're building a relationship with that song. And then if it's something really hard, like a cello concerto or something, then you're putting months and months of practice into that piece. And so it's like that stuff, it's like a physical part of me at this point. You know, if mm. I hear something like Brahms cello concerto, which was one of my favorite things to play, if I hear it now, it's almost like a physical event to hear it like my hands hear it you know and like my whole kind of body remembers what it feels like to play that stuff and it's hard to describe but um yeah it's a weird relationship it's kind of intense I guess my relationship with yeah classical music and I don't listen to it all that often probably for that reason it's kind of tiring you transition from cello to fiddle and you mm. said they're they're pretty similar what if you're a classical training remains in your fiddle playing and even maybe even in your guitar playing well I mean fiddle I did learn fiddle because I would never say that fiddle is not that different from cello but the people that I was living with who were trying to get me to be I was living on a farm in Maine after college like a um, back to the land kind of sort of like a hippie homestead kind of self-sufficient farm and so like we learned built- about Back to the Landers from Anais Mitchell. Her parents were back there to the Landers. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I basically went to a main version of Anais's parents and worked for them for room and board for a year. That was my first move out of college. And um, and while I was there, and the and the guy that I worked for played in a um, for contra dances, which are sort of like the New England version of square dances. It's the traditional northeastern like community dance. And um, so I was playing the the guy that I was working for played guitar in a band for contra dances. So like traditional tunes, Appalachian tunes, Irish tunes, Scottish, old time, that kind of stuff. And first he got me to play the upright bass. He had an upright bass and he was like, oh, that's like cello. You should come play bass in the band. And so I started playing bass in the band, which I didn't play bass up until then, but I, you know, figured it out and started playing bass and then the fiddle player went to Mexico or something for the winter and they were like, now you're the fiddler. It's just like the cello go. (laughs) So so then I learned all these fiddle tunes really quick. So I'm really like, I'm not a good fiddle player and I have no classic tech classical technique whatsoever. I don't know even how to hold the bow, honestly, as like a fiddle player, I just made that up. And by the time anyone came along who could teach me better, all my habits were completely ingrained so I'm really like I could never I can't just play like one beautiful note on the fiddle I can just screech a bunch of fiddle tunes like all day long but I can't really just like make it make a nice sound (laughs) Um, and so I don't know and in terms of the classical stuff I felt like there was so much unlearning like many of the early years of playing other kinds of music had to do with um, really pushing away so much of what I had learned Yeah, like the music that I learned, my favorite thing was always orchestra. And it's kind of like what we were talking about before with being one voice in the choir. I just really like to be one sound in the middle of this big ocean of sounds that just really uh, was a thrilling feeling. And um, and the way that those, you know, like symphonies are put together, there's, I mean, it's that's kind of like the cars also. There's so many moving parts, you know, there's just like, it's built. Um, in this way, that's really fascinating. And um, I know there was a little, I know that that certainly in my newest record, that's, that came into play a little bit. Um, So I think maybe it's more like, generally speaking, the way I think of music uh, is still informed by just like 
living and so immersed in classical music for those years. You met Jeffrey Foucault on tour in Ireland with Peter Mulvey. Is this yes, actually is? in England, but that's oh, pretty in close. England. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you set the scene for what that tour was like and how you two first started really connecting? <laughs> yeah, um, that tour. It was in January of two thousand and three, and Mulvey set it up. Um, he was sort of the the um, connection between us because I had never met Jeffrey and I had ever never met, but uh, we both knew Mulvey because Mulvey's from Wisconsin, where Jeff is from, and they had connected there. But Peter had also been living in Boston um, quite a bit, and I knew him from there. So. He, I don't know, I can't even remember how it came about that he decided to put together a three-person bill to tour the UK, but he did, and he asked us both to do it, and we both said yes. And um, so we, and the idea, it was just a triple bill. There was nothing particularly, um, there were no big plans aside from just everyone plays their own little set and maybe we'll play an encore together, you know, that kind of thing. It was that kind of show. And so we went over there. And um, started playing these shows, and the shows were fine, and they were just sort of everyone was playing their little set. But then the really great part about that tour was uh, after the show and before the show, just playing songs with the three of us, like in the hotel room. We just were playing all the time, and just kind of, um, I think we were all at a point in our musical development like I don't know if that would happen right now for me at this point in my life like we'd probably play some songs here and there like in the green room or whatever but if you're on tour now with other bands like you're not necessarily going to spend every waking moment like playing every song you've ever known with them but we were all unless you came of age musically with back to the landers (laughs) well I guess so that's true (laughs) I don't know it was just kind of the moment where um that just made sense. Like we, no one was very jaded yet, I guess. No one mm. needed to just like go to their hotel room and have some dumb time. Everyone was like, yeah, playing songs is what we like to do. Let's keep doing it <laughs> now that the show is over. So, <laughs> so we just, we played a ton of songs. We played everything any one of us had ever heard or like kind of knew or didn't even really know, but thought they remembered hearing one time. Like we just played a trillion songs and it was so much fun. And we also played a lot of cards. We played a lot of poker. So I think it was a two-week tour, and um, and everyone was everyone had was like had a partner at that time. So that was it was like a very um, you know it wasn't like we got together on the tour, which would have been a whole different tour experience, especially for Mulvey. But it was just like we we just all hung out all the time, and um, so that was where the Redbird project came from because basically our thought was on this whole tour we just kept thinking like the show is okay but what's really interesting is playing these songs that we kind of know afterwards that seems much more entertaining it was certainly more entertaining to us but we felt like it would be probably more entertaining for anyone so that was the idea with Redbird was to try to um you know try to like capture that in a shareable way the more informal um you know song swap, friends swapping songs kind of vibe. On the new record, Long Day in the Milky Way, uh, Mm -hmm. you said, I was thinking about the variations in a hand-woven cloth or in a forest. It's called for collective-minded, collected-minded, flexible, non-ego-driven players, which 
that's a great description. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit more, like where that metaphor of handwoven cloth or the forest came from when thinking about the musicians that you would want to work with? Mm. I was thinking about fabric a lot while I was writing the songs, and um, I just kind of got into that idea of a song being sort of instead of a like story from point A to point B to point C, which isn't necessarily how I write anyway, but like that a song would really be almost like a substance, you know, like a, that didn't even necessarily have a beginning and an end. Like you could almost loop it back and just have it be sort of a, a continuous, um, I don't know. I still haven't figured out how to talk about this without just sounding so much like a hippie, but just like a, a just like a, a, um, a continuous, like loop of something that the whole shape of it rather than like here's the first chorus here's the second chorus it's bigger here's the bridge ah you know like just that it was more about like the the subtle build and like gradations in something that was more um uniform that's I just I don't even remember how I got into it I just kind of that's what I was thinking about a lot with when I was writing mm -hmm. the songs and um and so then in recording them it came up again partly because I had already really just been focused on that idea uh, in the writing, but also because I really wanted the record to be about singing most and about me singing with <clears throat> Rose Polanzani and Rose Cousins and Annie Lynch, who are uh, a sort of trio of singers that kind of go with me through the whole record and they're very present and sometimes they're singing with me and sometimes they're kind of answering me and sometimes they're contributing other like thoughts um, to the songs. And so for me, that was the center of the whole record was the, um, was that group of voices. And so mm -hmm. I really wanted the instruments to be, to like hold that, you know, to be, to wrap that in something. Mm. And so I didn't want it to be so much about like, here's the guitar solo or whatever, but just to make like, um, a landscape that would, that it's sort of like walking through a landscape. I feel like the, the music that those guys, made where you're sort of just walking through it and then something catches your eye a little bit it's not like a huge event but it's like some little thing that Mari does on the harp or some little guitar thing where you're like oh check that out you know it's just like maybe you see a little like flower as you're going by or something you know or like mm -hmm. oh, look at that cloud you know so that kind of like um environmental I sort of wanted to make like an environment of music for the voices to live in mm -hmm. it's nice there's a song on the record called Hanging Garden, mm -hmm. um, and this is where we talk about plants. You were the very first guest on Marcarelli's video series, Ology, <laughs> and you were focusing on plants. Was it called Herbology or Plantology? I think it might have been Plantology. I can't actually remember. I think it was Plantology. Can you tell me where your interest in plants comes from? Well, I mean, I'm a farmer by trade. Um, and when I first got out of college, I, I worked at that farm we talked about, and then I kept working on farms pretty much until I had to quit because I was, I had to go on the road. Did um, you have so, experience before you went to that no, farm? No, not at all because I was such a city girl and I, you know, I'm from Brooklyn and I never wanted to leave Brooklyn. I had no intention of ever leaving whatsoever. And I was positive I was staying there for the rest of my life because I loved it so much. And um, so I went to college in New England in a small town specifically because I was like, this is my one chance to go somewhere else and live somewhere that's not New York City before I come back and stay here for the rest of my life. And then I never went back. 
because I went to a small town and I got super into, um, I was doing a little kind of agricultural program and I got really into that and I got just fascinated by the whole idea of rural living. And so then I went to this farm in Maine and I lived there for a while and I just, I was such a moron, you know, and I had, I was so, I was like a pretty street smart kid. And then I went to this farm in Maine and I just knew absolutely nothing. Like I didn't know, even know how to walk. I didn't know how to, I knew nothing, you know, I was useless. And which was, <laughs> I think a cool experience for me at that time to just see how, how much my skills really did not apply at all to the situation. So I just like screwed up and screwed up and screwed up. And, um, but I was so, I just got really into the whole idea of rural life and like living connected to the land. It was so completely different from anything I had ever done. And I just really went deep with it. So I, I worked on farms in Ireland and then I, um, when I moved to Boston, I started working on farms out in Lincoln and Concord. And, uh, so that was my day job that I had eventually quit for music. So yeah, plants, I still have a big garden here and grow a ton of food and, um, yeah, there's always there's a lot of plants that creep into my songs. You have an actual concert for human beings in oh my person. God, I know um, it's happening. Actually, when this podcast comes out, it would it will not have happened yet. August eighteenth in Hatfield, Mass. Yeah, um, it's so surreal. What a what a um, what have you missed about performing for live people in these past few months and? Do you have any idea how you think you'll react to like returning to the actual experience? Mm. I mean, it's a little scary, you know, partly, partly it's just sort of, it's heavy. It feels heavy to be the reason for people assembling in any way. Like that definitely feels a little scary. Um, but I trust very much that the Signature Sounds crew have like thought of every last thing and they're managing this thing so well and everyone's going to be super distanced and masked up and all the stuff. So I feel like, you know, in terms of the responsibility angle, I'm definitely okay with it. Although it's still, I can't help but feel a little bit like twitchy about it. Um, but in terms of performing, I actually feel terrified because um, I've never gone this long ever, ever since I started without playing for people. And it is something that you, I sort of feel like I forget how to do. I don't forget how to play music, but I definitely forget how to be up in front of people, which is not really my um, natural tendency to want to be the center of attention. So it's kind of mm. something that I can get really rusty with really quickly because it's just not natural to me. Right. And so, um, but uh, but it's I like it and I'm, I'm practiced in it. But once I'm out of practice, it's like I really get out of practice. So. Right. I don't know. I don't know how it says the girl who just wanted her family to go away. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I think it's going to be, I sort of feel like it might be pretty emotional. Also, it's the first um, time that I will have played. I'm not going to play the whole new record, but I'm going to play some. And it'll be the first time for at least a few of those songs that I've really played them on stage. And that's Mm -hmm. always, you know, one of the, one of the, just sort of personally, musically hardest things about the timing of this record coming out during the the pandemic is um, that like going on tour with a record is really when you, you learn so much about that record during that time. And that's when you really like get, you know, playing the songs night after night over and over, you really like get to understand them more and you really bond with them in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know how to do without that kind of, like, I don't know, um, 
It's like the people, I don't know. There's so many different, there's so many different layers. I think Mm -hmm. it's going to feel like a lot of feelings. (laughs) Hopefully I can like do it. I hope I can remember how to do it, but it's very exciting. Just the, the idea of being able to play music and have people visibly hearing it and responding in real time sounds great because, you know, we've been doing all these live stream shows and it's like so much better than nothing. And I'm so grateful for them. But it's it's very weird to just play a show to your computer screen. You know, it's like right. a very strange thing. And so just the idea that there's going to be people with faces that I can see sounds almost like yeah. too much to even believe. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Like if I were you, I wouldn't be surprised if you get up on stage and you just feel like every single feeling that you've ever felt. Yeah, you know, that's and, kind and, of what I think might happen. Yeah. I know. But I guess if I could give you any advice, you should probably just narrate how you're feeling on stage the entire in real time. time. Yeah, Do because you think so? Yeah, because the people in the audience are probably also feeling very similar things. I know. Cuz they haven't seen a live performer for I so know. long. I I got to I had a chance to see Lori McKenna when she was playing in Passim. Oh yeah, 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 just, And yeah. and it did feel like that you definitely feel this like warm sparkling magical feeling that that i haven't felt in such a long time so it's like i think it's going to be a collective experience of just like unknown uncertain but like wonderful feelings i think so. and also maybe a little stage fright probably that too (laughs) you know music is like music is the thing that opens the door to our emotions like that's its job really And like it not that's its job for human society, you know, like that's why there's music at ceremonies of every kind. That's why there's music in church. Like we were talking about, like music opens the door to the other layers of your existence that you can go through your day kind of ignoring or walling off or whatever. And so that's like, you know, living in that all the time is pretty intense to begin with. But then when we're all so disconnected from so many uh of our like coping mechanisms and so many of our people and so many you know everything i just feel like that there's like so many doors to open and yeah it could could feel like a lot yeah we'll see oh man all right um one more thing before we go yeah this is gonna be very fun you're gonna love this (laughs) it's called the lightning round Uh uh-oh okay it's very fun don't worry okay here we go chris delmhorst what was the first song you learned on the guitar shit i'm gonna say fast car but that's not true i definitely learned some other things first i will accept fast car (laughs) batman or superman batman but i'm thinking of the tv batman i don't know if i get to specify sure that's my batman like the one the um the corny guy with like the pal signs yeah yeah cool what is your karaoke (laughs) song Ooh. I have a few. I like Wind Beneath My Wings. Oh my god. I'm just like trying to miss a mess. It's so good. Wow. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I, see a, I see a Club Passim show coming up. Chris Delmhorst Karaoke. <laughs> Chris Karaoke. Okay. You Bes- got a guest artist. <laughs> Besides now, what has been your favorite age and why? I'm tempted to say like 22 even though it was a hot mess of a dumpster fire but (laughs) that like so just that moment of um of all potential 
is something that I really, I wouldn't want to do it again. Don't get me wrong. Not for one second. I wouldn't even really want a day of it back, but I feel fond about it now that it's mm. safely over. I like it. <laughs> uh, dogs or cats or something else? Well, both, but my dog is in the room, so I'm going to definitely say dogs. Done. <laughs> what is your coffee order? Mm, Americano, light on the water. Usually what I just say is lots of room for cream, even though I'm not going to put a lot of cream in it, but I don't want them to put much water in. That's good. Yeah. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Baby. No. Yes, wow. I'm not lying to you. What is on this soundtrack? Axel F. That's all that matters. It's the thing that goes do 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 First concert. Duran Duran. Last book you read. The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, which is a really beautiful memoir of her growing up in well, more her family, her family history in New Orleans. It's amazing. I recommend it. Flying or invisibility. I hate it. I always hate this. I hate this question. Flying. Why do you hate it? Because I want both. And it makes me anxious. But I really, I'm going to say flying. <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars, 100%. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Glacier Bay, Alaska. Nice. That is all for the lightning round. You did pretty good. Thanks. How'd I, how'd I score? Uh, you scored a hundred percent. You got all of the answers right. Yes. Yes. Chris Delmhorst, thanks so much for talking to me. We had a very good conversation. I would give this interview an A. <laughs> so much grading. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Cindy. It's really great to talk to you. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey with Laura producing this week. Our business manager is Lindsay Myers. Alexander Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. Uh, Basic Folk is proud to be a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am the host of this podcast, Cindy Howes. You can find more about all the episodes uh, at my website, cindyhouse.net, and you can listen wherever you get podcasts. And if you liked listening to this, please share it with a friend. You know, send your friend a podcast. That's what they want. They just don't know that they want it. Anyways, thanks, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>